0: Welcome to episode 64 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again working from my home in the Washington DC area and with a guest far away. Our guest, Cardi Swarman, joins us from Los Angeles. Cardi, of course, is the founder of Next Trade Group and also a lecturer at UCLA. And with this being episode 64, there's actually a great symmetry to our episodes. It was episode 32 when Cardi joined us last on FRT a year ago. And as I've said many times, that was probably my favourite discussion of last year when Cardi really opened our eyes to the potential of 3D printing as a disruptive technology and for the potential changes and implications that could emerge in trade patterns. Since that time, Cardi also spoke at the IAF Annual Membership Meeting last October, and she also launched her latest book, Revolutionising World Trade, How Disruptive Technologies Open Opportunities for Us All, which elaborated further on that vision and implications for some of the topics that Cardi spoke about with us last year. Cardi, welcome back to FRT. Great to have you here once again, albeit virtually and far away this time, but thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Brad.
0: Cardi, one of the features we've seen in recent times with some of the shutdowns around the world, um, the impacts of COVID-19, has been some of the disruption to global supply chains. Disruption probably in a different sense to what we were talking about a year ago, perhaps not so much the digital disruption, but rather, some of the very practical disruptions that have occurred uh, at factories around the world. Interested, firstly, in, in how you've observed that and some of the potential impacts you see arising from that for international trade patterns in the future?
1: Well, thanks, Brad. I, I think that's a, really a trillion or multiple trillion dollar question. And, um, you know, we're seeing uh, many moving parts here. We're seeing a major supply shock uh, that started some weeks ago. Uh, now we're seeing a huge demand shock. In the U- U- US and um, European economies, and bit by bit in developing countries. And we're seeing shocks in between in the systems that intermediate uh, supply and demand in logistics and retail um, as well. So there's a lot going on, and there are many scenarios that have been painted about the future of international trade and supply chains um, in light of this. I would temper, maybe before we uh, dive deeper. Uh, I would temper some of these uh, thinking and observations with with, uh, three points. One is that, as human beings, we have this tendency to see a big cause, a a kind of a black swan event, as this has been branded, and think that the effects are automatically equally big or equally um, significant. And that may not always be the case. So um, I want to temper our thinking a little bit with that. And we also do not know that much about the cause yet, how, how big and significant uh, this episode is. Uh, much will depend on how long this will go on. Uh, that already will be reflected in how people adjust to new work conditions, how they uh, shop, how they consume, how their habits are changing. Uh, much will depend on the severity of this uh, crisis, how this ultimately shakes down, uh, how many casualties there will be, uh, how much um, consumers um, are anxious about the, their futures um, and uh, how much businesses will also hedge against uh, you know, risk and, and sending people uh, to other markets and so forth, and then how governments will respond. Uh, we're seeing some positive things like tariff cuts potentially in the U.S.-China um, trade relationship, uh, tariff cuts and kind of tariff holidays, for medical supplies in countries like uh, Brazil, and, of course, there's a, a call from G20 also to keep trade lanes open and, and uh, enable fluid um, supply chains. So it, there are some positive responses, and then, of course, we are, we're concerned about some potential geopolitical uh, responses that may be going in the other direction. So th- there's a lot of moving parts, and we don't know yet exactly what the cause uh, will look like and by virtue of that, I think you know people who are forecasting effects on trade and supply chains will uh, will um, you know need to present kind of ranges of, of potential outcomes. Uh, there are of course also kind of structural fundamentals uh, and policy factors that were already in place. You know some trade tensions um, in the past, as well as the the quest for kind of shortening uh, supply chains uh, through digitization and automation that that will, will play a role here. So not everything that happens uh, tomorrow will be caused by the crisis. There were already things that were in place. But to, to go to the kind of supply and, and demand side. So on the supply side, you know, China is, of course, everywhere in um, America's supply chains and global supply chains. If not as tier one supplier to any one company, then in tiers two or three. And um, I saw some uh, recent data from Duns and Bradstreet that said, that uh, 51,000 companies around the world have one or more tier um, uh, one supplier uh, in the impacted regions in China. At least 5 million companies around the world have, um, uh, you know, similarly um, uh, one or more tier two suppliers in the in the regions in China that were impacted by this. And over 900 of the Fortune 1,000 companies have a tier one or tier two supplier. In, in China, in those regions impacted by the crisis. So everybody's fortunes are one way or the other tied to China. And why is that? Well, China has built itself as a formidable supplier uh, in the past uh, 20 years. When you look at China's um, imported parts and components, i.e., what did China kind of sourced from the rest of the world, those dropped as a, as a share of kind of China's, China's exports and China's value add from 60% to 35% percent in 1995 to 2015, that, uh, and that data suggests that China was making more parts and components at home. It basically repatriated, if you will, our, our supply chains and brought up uh, its own supply uh, base in China. And we're seeing similar trends in Latin American and European uh, manufacturing. Also in, say, Mexico and Poland, uh, there's a more robust supplier base in those countries than in the 1990s. But um, because China has been so so central uh, to uh, global supply chains in, in goods, uh, this disruption has been uh, really very significant on the, on the supply side and impacting so many companies. For a majority of U.S. businesses, as I've been seeing the data and some surveys, lead times have basically doubled as a result of the the supply backlogs in in china and of course this is compounding now by the shortage of air and ocean freight options so most companies are experiencing delays they are uh, having difficulty getting supply chain information from china where is my stuff when do i get it and so forth um at the same time you know i think as um, as um you know i would say like the most uh, Immediate nature reaction for companies and probably a lot of people that are listening to this is that, well, you know, we'll need to diversify away from China, uh, in light of this uh, deep high dependency uh, on Chinese market and Chinese suppliers, and that trend was of course already occurring before uh, this COVID um, uh, crisis, and it will probably uh, accentuate um, as we go forward. At the same time, you know, the spotlight has been on China. And of course, by virtue of that, um, by virtue of the high uh, dependency on China, we see the flaws uh, (laughs) in China first. Um, And my question has been, well, would it be better elsewhere? What if, you know, um, uh, we were focused on some other markets, say in Southeast Asia or India? Is there a better infrastructure there to combat a crisis like this that is now hitting those economies. So so perhaps in the shorter run, you know, China's production is coming back. Um, Chinese um, uh, regions that are not close to the Wuhan region are already recovering. They're already hundred percent, some of them in production. Uh, China may yet become the kind of medical supplier uh, of the, the, the world in the near term. And a lot of companies are probably, you know, wanting to see how supply recovers in China and, and, uh, uh, get their orders um, uh, in ships and, and coming, uh, that they've started. So uh, that being said, of course, there are frictions in China still. The kind of travel for engineers is restricted, and companies outside China just can't send people there. And, and then uh, Chinese are also exercising caution inside their economy. But, but I think in the short run, you know, probably a lot of people will just resume what they're doing in China, since China is now back and um, uh, recovering and everybody else is uh, heading uh, to, towards the crisis, uh, so to speak, in the longer run, I would say on the supply side, you know companies have been always wanting uh, better cost, better quality, better delivery, and that 's what they've been seeking from their supply chains um, and um, uh, you know at the same time there have been New markets, uh, India, is the growing markets for electronics, for instance, and companies are looking to grow and go and uh, produce more in India just because of the structural uh, factors. So there'll be some changes, there'll be some diversification probably in in supply chains in the beginning of the supply. Um, And companies will probably focus more on the famous kind of three R's, the kind of resilience, responsiveness, reconfigurability of supply chains than, than uh, in the past. But if we think of the Japanese tsunami uh, you know, some years ago, what happened after that uh, when companies were similarly concerned about um, uh, supply shocks, uh, didn't have, not that much happened at the end of the day. Companies beefed up, beefed up on their inventories, but they kind of kept the supply chains um, as they were, and production was, was back. So. It could be that uh, you know, we don't see very dramatic, uh, drastic changes. What I do think is going to be five things will probably happen um, as I've listed them out and thought about, about this. One is probably this uh, quest for use of technology in manufacturing, distributed manufacturing, additive manufacturing. Is probably going to be more interesting and companies pulling production back within four walls uh, now that technology is there to help them do that. The second is uh, that services um, trade may globalize even further. It, this crisis may uh, socialize companies more and more to working remotely with service providers, uh, teleworking, and so forth. And we already saw major changes in um, increases in trading services before the crisis. And perhaps now trading kind of value-added services with, say, India or Brazil or Mexico uh, will, will grow Uh, as a share of uh, world trade. Uh, I'm also believing companies are probably funding their technology teams uh, more and more to find new solutions to digitize processes and to develop and deliver services. And this may amplify the kind of trading services, uh, digitization of of trade um, that, Brad, you're very focused on. Uh, Fourth, uh, probably... Uh, you know, there's a big push now, and we'll probably talk about this more, to help small businesses to digitize and uh, uh, kind of everything, how they make, move, and market goods and services. And uh, li- big companies, as well as aid agencies, are very focused on helping small businesses to become more efficient and, and uh, cater to consumers online. So there'll be probably more kind of e-commerce and digital trade as well, hopefully, as a result of this. And then finally, companies are probably going to be using more AI and predictive analytics to, to forecast these kinds of uh, shocks. This crisis wasn't necessarily a black swan event. The medical community knew very well of this, and the WHO had identified a couple of years ago so-called disease X, that there would be a pandemic of this nature emerging, uh, most likely from China. Uh, so the medical community already understood um, uh, these uh, risks, uh, but they were not necessarily kind of factored in and didn't register necessarily with the broader uh, economy. So on the, on the supply side, that's, that's what I'm uh, seeing. The demand side is very tough, and the demand side will, of course, arbitrate the, the recovery. Uh, the PMI index from China was quite encouraging. That just, um, just came out. Um, in the U.S., it wasn't as bad as expected. In Europe, it was terrible. And uh, credit card companies seem to be reporting that consumer uh, purchases are significantly down, uh, even if e-commerce has taken off. Uh, uh, in the aggregate, the consumption is, is not there. And we have this huge uh, demand shock now in Europe, US, uh, developing countries. Uh, to the extent it continues, uh, and to the extent that nobody wants to buy more from China, then there'll be a commodity shock as well. So I think, you know, down the road, developing countries will be really can be really hurt uh, from this. So I hope as a, as a result of this, you know, the demand side is, is difficult to forecast. But but um, hopefully there'll be reductions in tariffs and kind of negative trade measures and medical equipment, uh, food, certainly agricultural. That would be a fantastic uh, silver lining, if any if we could reduce um, uh, tariffs and and trade barriers and agricultural products. Uh, Hopefully, there'll be more trading services. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have also, um, uh, you know, uh, more digital trade and and trade flows across borders as a a result of this. Uh, But in the the short run, uh, it's going to be a, a, a rough ride and hopefully... Uh, It will be a short one so that the developing countries uh, and the commodity producers will not experience uh, such a deep shock as as has been the case in prior eras.
0: Cardi, that's a pretty comprehensive overview you've given us right from the outset across uh, quite a number of the the very, very topical issues of the moment. Um, We need to probably dissect some of those a little bit further, and we will delve into some of those Perhaps to begin with, uh, could we talk about global trade logistics and what you see happening in that space, particularly in terms of digitisation?
1: Absolutely. Well, you know that that this particular area of moving goods from part A of the world to part B was already an area that was under a significant technological transformation before uh, COVID hit. Uh, there was a lot of interest in digitising the paperwork, uh, the financial flows, as well as the physical uh, flows, kind of modernizing port infrastructure to um, uh, use IoT, uh, use drones, uh, use blockchain to move goods and services more efficiently through this. And of course, retail is another part that's kind of in between supply and demand that has obviously undergone major uh, shock uh, during this time. Uh, I was looking at some data from um, Amazon sales, uh, year-on-year sales, what happened uh, between February 20th and March uh, 20th, about for a month, year-on-year. And there were some massive, massive increases in online purchases of home and kitchen equipment, 1,000% up, um, hand wash, 500% up. Stuffed animals and toys, (laughs) 400%. I guess people are buying things for their children. And um, asthma and allergy medicine, 20,000% higher uh, year on year. So consumers migrated online, uh, and uh, that's where purchases are happening. I'm seeing kind of three things that are super interesting in the boards, uh, ports, uh, borders, customs, the logistics um, uh, chain. Uh, that are also kind of sad, but also can herald a new era of more efficiencies in logistics. One is, of course, the impact um, of, of supply and demand shocks for uh, particularly these B2B logistics, trucking, uh, shipping. Uh, it has been a rocky ride for uh, shipping lines uh, for the past um, you know, 10 years, basically, since the uh, global financial crisis. Uh, and um, the future is also uh, rather rough for them. So, you know, we're seeing shocks now with airlines. We may see shocks with uh, with shipping lines. And, uh, of course, then COVID is impacting uh, this industry. People that are working in ports or warehouses, stevedering, trucking, the whole range of um, uh, services that um, move trade uh, are themselves being shocked by this crisis. And uh, the logistics is still a very human-centric um, industry, and there are people have to meet and uh, work uh, physically uh, somewhere in, in trucks or in ports and so forth, and, and uh, this crisis is now hitting them. Um, and then we're seeing another kind of inefficiency that um, I've recently came, came to know of better, which is that there is kind of cargo now clogging uh, our ports. Um, in the U.S., um, a lot of the retailers, the big ones, if you think of Macy's or Nordstrom or, or um, you know, Big Bath and beyond, these kinds of household uh, brands have made orders before the crisis hit and then um, saw some of their orders canceled, but they had already uh, made the orders with China and the supply was coming and it wasn't in, in ships. And now they're struggling to warehouse it. And so ports are full of, things and packages and parcels and containers (laughs) that have come from all around the world. And small businesses that want to move their goods through ports are apparently uh, struggling quite a lot with this this fact that we have also clogged ports. And um, it seems that the Federal Maritime Commission in the U.S. has really paid attention to this and said that one of the things that they would like to see is more technology use and uh, streamlining of the logistics and port infrastructure so that uh, we will be able to overcome these kinds of uh, sudden bottlenecks uh, in ports. And, and I would say the, the fourth big kind of trend that's, um, that's there is, um, is the, perhaps the most lasting and most interesting is that this crisis has really shown us the urgency and the, the need to move goods uh, efficiently from one part of the world To another. And we've also come to see very clearly the inefficiencies of the kind that we are seeing clock boards and uh, excess supply. Uh, We're seeing those very clearly now um, in this crisis where we're seeking to move uh, things fast and things are not moving. We're seeing the the inefficiencies like kind of like rocks from the receding tide, (laughs) they are becoming more apparent now. And players already before the crisis were seeking to um, improve the movement of goods. Uh, you know, when you look at kind of what it takes to move a container from A to B, you discover uh, not only, you know, kind of physical infrastructure that people are familiar with, uh, ships and, and uh, warehouses and so forth, but you'll discover a number of uh, kind of paper-based manual processes, endless duplication of efforts, among importers, uh, exporters, shipping lines, freight forwarders, terminal operators, ports, banks, uh, customs brokers, customs. There's just an endless number of players and a lot of paperwork between them. And uh, this has literally been to date uh, very much in paper and in manual processes and people sitting in offices and and typing in numbers uh, in spreadsheets and so forth. And these inefficiencies and duplication of effort have been about Thirty percent of of the two to three tri- uh, trillion logistics industry that supports the twenty trillion or so that we have in merchandise de- trade um, around the world. So mm-hmm. before the crisis, already these these um, informational and financial supply chains that undergird trade were undergoing significant um, uh, digitization, uh, and many uh, companies were part of that. Uh, trade Lens, of course, the famous uh, blockchain platform that IBM and Mersca built uh, have been in the business of furthering interoperability among the different players. Um, and, um, and Internet of Things, uh, blockchain, AI, all have been used more extensively by the different players in these logistics supply chains. So you know, I think this crisis has really highlighted the need for streamlining Uh, this movement of products and all these processes that players have to undertake in order to move uh, things from from place to place and the need to digitize uh, these processes. And of course, we're now seeing the need to have better analytics and and better data also on the physical side of warehousing and so forth in order for us to optimize uh, where things things, uh, are and land. And so, you know, I'm kind of bullish on changes that this crisis may herald on the trade logistics and, and uh, how it may accentuate the, the quest to much more efficient uh, intermediation uh, of trade.
0: And I think that aligns with a, a comment you made earlier, and, and one I certainly adhere to, that some of what we're seeing with COVID-19 will be an accelerant or an amplifier for some of the trends that were already there or already waiting to happen. Uh, your comments there about some of the inefficiency in trade and the the very paper-heavy nature. Uh, it takes me about, right back to, to episode 20 of FRT when Mike Hogan of MUFG in London made made very much the same point. But I want to pick up a little bit where you've talked there about you know, where the crisis has has highlighted the challenges in being able to move goods quickly from one place to another. And you also earlier referred to the, the quest for greater use of, of distributed manufacturing. So if I can take that as a cue and link it back to the, the development of 3D printing, the technological improvements in 3D printing that you've spoken about. Remember last year, you were alerting us to the ability to now print a couch in a, in a seaweed fabric or where the likes of uh, aircraft and automotive parts could be printed in, in different places in, in different ways. But do we see a trend perhaps more towards distributed manufacturing being one of the outcomes, one of the the features of the new normal post-COVID, perhaps with the feature there being the ability that the manufacturing is done closer to the end consumer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're, you know, verging to that reality um, as is, and uh, perhaps this crisis has only highlighted the need for this flexibility and responsiveness uh, in supply chains, particularly to respond to uh, local shocks. So those that are not necessarily familiar with distributed manufacturing, I would describe it as kind of on-demand manufacturing, where let's say you need to produce uh, wheels, say uh, you will have a network of individuals who can design uh, this product in the best way, engineers, designers, and then you may have a network of people who have factories and manufacturing capabilities uh, to, to make them. And take that design and, and maybe 3D print them and um, assemble with robots. But basically, the, the system rides on a network and, uh, of course, uh, software and connectivity. Uh, and once you have a, this kind of a distributed manufacturing network, the capacity is basically limitless to, to supply um, uh, new products. Uh, and the supply is much more responsive and flexible. So what we have seen already in this crisis is, uh, you know, manufacturers and engineers have really made themselves available around the world, uh, volunteering their uh, design skills, uh, their 3D printers uh, to develop uh, say medical devices or ventilators and so forth to, to quickly respond to local shocks. And of course the big ones of the industry, and now we have, uh, you know, major companies like HP also in the 3D printing industry, have have gone out there. HP has been building mask adjusters, face shields, uh, hands-free door openers to uh, supply the the demand that suddenly there. Uh, others in the 3D printing business stratasys has been um, uh, constructing uh, plastic shields and you know some some uh, 3D frames that enable the medical professionals to to shield themselves better and their entire faces and so forth. So companies have been responding. uh, Individuals have been responding. And, um, you know, I think this may highlight uh, or bring the world's attention more to the possibilities of these kinds of distributed manufacturing and 3D printing. What we saw before the crisis, as we've been discussing a couple of times, Brad, is We saw kind of 3d printing and robotics becoming much more efficient uh reliable much more cheaper much cheaper than they were say five or ten years ago we saw u.s manufacturers adopting um 3d printers quite a lot and also seeing them as a a mechanism not only to prototype products but to actually produce with them and, and even mass produce with 3d printers so Manufacturers were starting to see these as a, as a scalable way of producing things. And then what we also saw was, was particularly the millennial market wanted more customized products uh, some, and, and were willing to pay a premium for, for more customized uh, products. They are already using customized services and paying a premium for some of those. And why not customized products? So we're starting to see a world where it was entirely feasible to make these personalized products on demand in small production units, uh, without importing necessarily a thing or importing just the design, uh, the the IP, and uh, without low-cost manual labor. If you're thinking of, well, you know, 3D printers and robots, and so so we could kind of envision a future of rebundling of global production to major metropolitan areas near the end consumer, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know we saw some major brands also. Doing this at scale, not only kind of customizing and you know serving markets of one, but serving markets of thousands. Chanel, IKEA, Adidas, everybody was uh, heading toward mass uh, 3D printing, Um, and we saw some advances also a couple of years ago in metals 3D printing uh, led by by HP. So you know, to me, like the the setting has been ripening. And this crisis has probably shown to the world the power of 3D printing and, and these kinds of distributed manufacturing networks. And we'll, we'll need to see what the impact is. You know, just the mere fact that they've been used now or being put to use doesn't necessarily mean that they were fantastic. There's probably room to improve uh, and we'll need to assess that. But, uh, but there, there's probably more um, tendency toward these kinds of distributed production that was already there and, and now only will amplify.
0: I find that very heartening in, in some ways, and I, I tend to agree with your your view, and I tend to be more interested typically in looking ahead to the future. And, and as you say, the, the current use of 3D printing may help to entrench and establish itself in such a way that it is more trusted and relied on going forward. But if we were just to to focus on the here and now right for the moment and the tasks at hand of being able to print more ventilators and other uh, essential medical supplies, in terms of the maturity of the industrial base in the major metropolitan areas in places like the United States, is it there? Do we have the the physical capability of being able to to print en masse in the sort of um, operations that we need right at the moment, or is that still a bit aspirational?
1: Well, it could be a little aspirational. I'm sure it has um, made an impact and a a dent, and perhaps we could use more of that. Uh, At the same time, there is the giant global scramble for uh, medical equipment and and supplies, and and just the the market is absolutely on fire. I know uh, manufacturers here in California who are getting orders from absolutely around the world are doing uh, 10 times, uh, more uh, per month producing than they, they traditionally have just because they are getting orders from absolutely around the planet and, and you know, for their more traditional uh, manufacturing techniques. So I'd say, you know, we're, we probably have very useful experiments, but in terms of kind of using this uh, 3D printing ecosystem right now, uh, you know, I, I would say demand goes and finds supply from, from places that are kind of known as, as brands in, in the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, you know one, have to, one would have to see those numbers. There's probably much more taking place under the radar that we necessarily see. But, you know, if you're, um, say, 3M, uh, you're a global brand and everybody wants your product right now. Uh, and they know that you can produce uh, a lot at scale. And we've seen major American companies step up, you know, General Motors and others, Tesla, to produce ventilators. So it could be that we're leveraging kind of the known <laughs> companies now. But uh, but perhaps, you know, we can, after this shakes out, we can see what the impact of these kind of more individual uh, uh, shops has been. Uh, and um, And there's probably much more there it meets the eye. Now, of course, you know, for us to truly scale uh, this kind of distributed manufacturing, there needs to be things like better, better definition of things like IP protection of, of standards of the quality of the product. Um, I know U.S. Navy was uh, experimenting a couple of years ago on putting 3D printed parts and components on blockchain to help the end consumer understand where those parts came from and kind of have a quality stamp, if you will. Uh, because you can, you can imagine that this is also vulnerable to providers that don't necessarily manufacture, make 3D uh, printed uh, parts, components, uh, products uh, to, to meet certain quality standards that I'm, I'm sure are required by the medical community. So, so there are things probably still to, to work through. The promise is definitely there. I'm sure there's much more uptake than perhaps even we're seeing in kind of data and reports. And, um, and uh, definitely, you know, the, the future, future is probably going in that direction anyway, uh, since we want to reduce reliance on, on uh, kind of the Chinese suppliers and, you know, shorten the supply chain so that we get goods uh, faster to where they need to go. Um, and, and overcome some of the frictions that we have seen with the globalization of the past 30 years in, in moving things and managing trade costs and managing tariffs and, and customs. So, so there are many push factors, I think, that will herald this era of more distributed manufacturing, both technology yep. uh, uh, and, and policy, and perhaps this, this event has now really shown us the, the need for, for this as well.
0: Cardi, you've been very generous with your time already and your insights with us already. I'm just going to ask you one final question. Um, you've talked a little about the, the various trends that, where the COVID reality becomes an accelerant. And I, I certainly agree with you on many fronts. I want to throw out a few examples of perhaps some specific technology um, platforms or initiatives that this might be an accelerant for, and perhaps get your reaction on, on what you see as perhaps the, the greatest new trend that we might see emerge. Um, you touched earlier on e-commerce as one example, and I know, of course, there's an important historical lesson of Alibaba that really emerged during the SARS crisis of 2002, 2004, for similar reasons, where people didn't want to have human contact when, when making purchases. I think there's perhaps an acceleration of the cashless economy um, of the use of cloud and also perhaps of things like autonomous vehicles and drone delivery. And I noticed one of the, the excellent chapters in your book, chapter five, is on driverless, driverless delivery door to door. But if I just throw out those as examples or, or perhaps others that, that you think of, you know, where, where should we most be looking for some of the, the trends, the new initiatives that are going to be most accelerated by what we're currently going through?
1: Yeah, it's a super good question. And, you know, this is an area um, in addition to kind of uh, the trade logistics where I see a huge amount of interest and action now. Uh, Partly, of course, because consumer is more and more buying online. Nobody wants to go to stores now. And Amazon is hiring um, 100,000 new warehouse uh, employees and distributors. And um, probably uh, consumers will... Get a taste for online shopping and even buying their groceries and so forth online by by virtue of this crisis. Probably, certainly, the generations that are maybe in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, and and older are probably going to be using um, e-commerce more. So I see the demand side there as as uh, very uh, you know already very ripe, but even uh, even more uh, interested in online shopping than before. On the uh, supply side. When I speak with uh, my company's clients, which are kind of technology companies, uh, Fortune 500s, and uh, with aid agencies like um, USAID and uh, World Bank and others, uh, there is on all sides uh, keen interest to digitize, particularly the smaller businesses. The digitization of smaller businesses, uh, 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 marketing, uh, movement of goods, uh, uh, payments, as you said, uh, Brad, is now becoming kind of the thing that governments believe that will, will in part help um, small businesses weather this crisis and then will help them uh, thrive after, after the crisis as well. There's a tremendous amount of uh, interest, I think, in these digital technologies from the point of view of, of helping uh, small business in particular, uh, since uh, they employ uh, you know easily ninety percent of uh, people in in their in various economies around the world are really the the backbone of economic growth and development, but are also very fragile and uh, very mm. vulnerable to crises like this. And so governments are scrambling to figure out how to help them, uh, how to finance them and so forth, and e commerce uh, this kind of uh, digital payments as well as new delivery systems, including drone delivery, are emerging as the as the real winner uh, in this that everybody seems to be now focused on. And again, the trend was already there. Uh, now it's something that people say, we're ready, we have the technology. Uh, we, governments appreciate the opportunity of of e commerce, for instance, to enable small businesses to reach customers uh, beyond their their countries um, as well and and to export and, and grow. And we've seen that from, from data that uh, companies that are selling on uh, global online marketplaces uh, like Alibaba or, or Amazon or eBay are uh, far likelier to export and, and grow than companies that are, you know, perhaps uh, using Facebook or whatnot, but not, not uh, truly selling uh, online and transacting. So so definitely, I, I see a, a huge uh, trend toward um, e-commerce adoption, and I'm I'm sure like small businesses themselves uh, around the world are coming to the realization that something has to change in their uh, way of of doing business, and and there's time to create uh, themselves more as kind of formal uh, online sellers. On the cashless economy, kind of touchless payments, contactless payments, all of this is also uh, accentuating. I think big companies that are in this space are looking to offer a wider range of solutions and you know offer their solutions that they already have uh, in in new markets essentially, plus the solutions that do exist in new spaces and new segments um and uh, and uh, there is kind of capacity already there. It's just a matter of finding now the right uh, right applications and then you know drone delivery um, one could immediately see that you know if we are starting to have medicine and vaccine for this crisis that we could use uh, drone delivery to bring those remedies to remote regions and so forth. Uh, drone delivery has been used quite a lot already in places like Africa to, to reach uh, remote populations for medical supplies, uh, for medicine, uh, for blood infusions and things like that. Uh, and, and it will probably be more in the cards, if you will, in these kinds of regions uh, with this crisis ups is rolling out fantastic initiatives also to use drone delivery just more in in you know advanced economies and in the united states and so forth um uh, and this crisis will probably um only amplify all those plans that amazon and mm. and the de- express delivery companies have had to to leverage kind of autonomous autonomous vehicle fleet whatever that looks like part of that is is drones to deliver uh, goods and services so that's you know, consumers are going more and more online. Uh, they want fast delivery. They want efficiencies, and companies are adjusting to that. They've been doing that already a lot. Uh, there's a great deal going on, but uh, this will probably probably only um, amplify these trends that were happening. And uh, I, I do believe that e-commerce is really emerging from this, uh, as well as kind of online payments, as a as a big winner uh, at the end. Um, as you're looking at this two years from now.
0: Well, you really underlined there that we're not going back to the old normal and that it will be very much a different new normal that we move to post-COVID. And certainly uh, on a lighter note, I can say that I'm, I'm using e-commerce to help support local businesses in my area where the craft breweries here have recently started to home deliver beer. So that's been one way to help us navigate the, the current circumstance in a little bit more comfort at least. Um, Cardi, thank you for all of the great insights that you've shared with us once again here on FRT. There's plenty of great insights. Uh, I really recommend to our listeners your book, Revolutionising World Trade, How Disruptive Technologies Open Opportunities for All. Um, If I can just highlight a couple of things that I thought really resonated from our discussion. Um, I like the three R's that you talked about of supply chains, the resilience, responsiveness and reconfiguration. But also those five steps that you walked through that we're likely to see emerge of you know, the quest for, for more use of distributed manufacturing, that services trade will be more global than ever. And I think what you describe around teleworking, I think we are going to see, and we, we touched a little on this last week on FRT, about the, uh, the revolution in ways of working and that people will become more comfortable with some of these approaches. Uh, what you mentioned about Brazil and Mexico in value-add services trade. Uh, I think the, the point you made about more companies investing in the digitisation of their services is something we're absolutely seeing. Uh, the point about helping SMEs to digitise uh, that we've talked through and, and where you describes where aid agencies can be helping that, uh, but also where you talked about how companies will increasingly be using more artificial intelligence. And there's some really interesting issues around data privacy uh, that I think we're going to see emerge from the, the current situation as well. I'm going to go on and list two more of the, the takeaways I had. Um, the point you made of that we will hopefully see digital trade across borders grow from this time and, and beyond – and you also link that to the need for intellectual property protection. And then lastly, the point about 3D printing and where you described how the, the printing of some of the essentials right now to help overcome the medical crisis might be something that helps to entrench that technology, uh, have its acceptance increased by consumers and businesses and perhaps um, set the, uh, the basis for that to have much greater use on a more widespread basis through the economy post-crisis. Just a snapshot there I've given of some of the, the many great insights you've shared with us. Cardi, thank you once again for joining us. It's been terrific having you again on FRT.
1: Thanks so much, Brad, and thank you for that excellent summary. Uh, really a pleasure to be with you and, and, and hope everybody takes good care in the coming weeks.
0: Likewise yourself. Make sure that you stay safe, and hopefully we can do this again in person for the uh, the next time we have you on FRT. Looking ahead on FRT... Rob Morgan of the American Bankers Association will join us to talk about some of the investments that they've been making to help enable smaller US banks access new innovations for their businesses. David Hardoon will be joining us. David was the former Chief Data Officer and then the Special Advisor on Artificial Intelligence at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, having just finished his commission there in the last couple of weeks. He continues to be a leading thinker on the ethics and responsible use of data, and we're going to talk about that in the context of COVID-19 with him. And we'll also continue with the IAF's Digital Transformation Series with Deloitte, the second paper in our Realising the Digital Promise series, looking at some of the success factors and enablers, and following on the first report that we covered on Episode 60. Please join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for listening on, on FRT.